my name is Laura Kate, and I'll be reading this scripture for tonight from James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me pray for us before we get into what Laura Kate just read for us. Lord Jesus, um, we are people that you have befriended. You have seen us, and you decided to do something with us. You decided to move towards us in our condition, in our filth, in our weakness. And it is important to you. Uh, you want us to be people who increasingly love other people the way you love us and the way that you love them. That's what this is about. That's what this passage is about. We pray that you would help make it true in us by your Holy Spirit even tonight, even this weekend at the conference, even in our everyday lives in the days ahead. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, there's a phrase that I'm sure we use um, multiple times every week. I don't know if we really think about it that much, but it's a phrase that has interested me more and more over the past couple of years. The phrase is, pay attention right? You've probably heard that or used that the past few days. Maybe on the drive over here, your roommate who was riding with you is like, pay attention. It's a red light coming up. If you work in a nursery, you babysit. You're a student teacher. You probably had to tell other people to pay attention. It's important to listen to the instructions. Um, were you paying attention when the announcement was made about Friday Frisbee? Is there Friday Frisbee this week? There is not. Y'all were paying attention. So it's an interesting phrase to me because when you really think about it, it's a, it's a financial metaphor. It's a transactional metaphor that we just, we use. Pay means to give or to invest or to part ways with or to trade, not money, but attention. Attention is the currency in that phrase. Pay, invest, give it away, focus that attention on something or someone. So the phrase paying attention presumes that 
giving your attention away or investing your intention somewhere else is going to cost you something, right? Like you're not going to get that time or that energy back. You can kind of pay attention to one thing at a time, which means you're not paying attention to other things. That's, that's the giving of paying attention. That's the payment part of it. But the phrase also suggests that you're going to get something back, right? Because typically we pay for things that we want or we need and we get it. Like I pay you some money and I get something back, right? So we pay attention to things for the payoff. Maybe the payoff is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you're listening really intently to these announcements because you're like, I really want to go to Fall Carmen's money's super tight. I got to figure out how to get one of these scholarships. So you're like really dialed in. You're paying attention because of the payoff for paying attention or a class you took. You're paying really careful attention. The payoff is it'll be easier to study for this thing. I'll know what's important to the professor. Get it? We pay attention because of the payoff from paying attention. So again, it's a consumer, it's a, it's a, a consumer transaction we pay attention because we think it'll benefit us, and we don't pay attention to things because we estimate it won't benefit us. I know everybody has those classes or those professors, and you don't pay attention in class because you're like, it doesn't matter if I do or not. They don't even like really test us over what they lectured or whatever else. You're like, it's, it's not worthwhile. I'd rather pay attention to whatever's on my phone or whatever else. This thing that we've been talking about holds true with people, too. Everything I've just said applies to paying attention to people, too. We pay attention most easily to the people we think will benefit us in some way, right? We pay attention to the kind of people we see a payoff in. They've got something I need or I want. And I'm not saying, James isn't saying, Every interaction you ever have with another person is driven by some kind of thing you're trying to get from them. No. But he is saying sometimes, and I think he's even, I think he would be fine with us saying oftentimes. The reason we pay careful attention to some people and see them, they're hyper visible to us. When you walk into a room, they're the first kind of people you see, is because there's some expected or hoped for payoff or benefit. And the reason some people in the room are invisible and we overlook them or ignore them or just don't see them is because there's not an expected payoff or benefit. Here's why this can be hard to detect in yourself. Um, because it, I think it's a background or a subconscious process that's going on. It's not forefront of our mind, a conscious kind of a thing. Isn't it crazy how quickly a human being can walk into a room like this, scan the audience, size people up, and make value judgments on who's worth walking up to to talk to or not? Isn't it crazy? We're like machines. It's like we were made to do that. And it's all subconscious. It's kind of like this. Um, you know, think back to your last uh, trip to the grocery store, your weekly grocery run, when you've got your little cart and you're just kind of perusing every aisle going down there. You're not picking up every single item on the shelf and saying, well, do I want this or do I not? Let me think about the pros and cons of this. Let me read the nutrition label and compare the brands. It's lightning fast. Your feet don't even stop, right? You're going down the aisle and you're just scanning these shelves and your brain is just deducing 
pass by this whole section, pass by that. Ooh, this thing, let me pull this off and like, this looks good, I'll put this in my cart. Or you put it back on the shelf. Isn't it amazing? You're taking in just massive quantities of information, making split second decisions about whether you want it or not. Whether there's a benefit to buying that, to paying for it or not. James, again, says that's what it's like with you and the people around you. Without our feet even stopping moving, we're just scanning and we're sizing up and we're, and we're making value judgments about whether we want to pay attention to the other people right around you or not. And I think the reason that we either pay or don't pay that attention is what's the expected payoff? What's the benefit? So, again, a background process, not forefront of our mind. It's easy to, to miss. But James calls this favoritism. It's what he's talking about in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people in, in the church, and he's saying, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Maybe your Bible says partiality. Same idea. This subconscious kind of discrimination about who we pay attention to and who we don't. Who we expect to pay off from and who we look at and are like, uh, there'd be nothing that I really want or that I need from that person. So I'm just going to kind of move on to the next person. Let's bring this a little bit further down to earth before we move on. There's a there's a question that we need to get straight on before we can really get anywhere with this passage. What kinds of people do we want to pay attention to? And what kinds of people do we want to ignore? Or you could put it this way if this language made more sense to you earlier. Um, what kinds of people in this room are like hyper visible to you? Like uh, when, the, when the songs are over later, and I'm not this is not a bad thing, it's just it's what we do. When the song's in later, like, who do you most naturally easily just gravitate towards? And who do you most naturally be like, oh, that person's over there, I'm going to kind of slide over here and get over by this door over here. And why do you gravitate towards one and not the other? What is it that's in there? Well, we've already started to kind of answer the question, right? The payoff thing. But I think there's an even more thorough, helpful answer to that. Um, one of my professors in seminary was a guy named David Pallison. He's written a lot of books um, and is a was a counselor before he passed away. And one of the things that he pointed out that really helped me make sense of passages like this, and I think will help you too, is this. He said, in life, there are these horizontal spectrums these continuums of differences. These are God-given differences. Like in the world, there's tall people, there's short people. There's brilliant people, there's average intelligence people, and everything in between. And he's like, you can, you can make these spectrums of God-given differences with just about anything, right? People who are born with means, people who are born without means. And these God-given horizontal differences, there's not value involved in here. It's not like, you know, brilliant people are worth more or are superior to people of average intelligence, right? Nor is it true that people who were born with 
means or, depending on your cultural moment, people who are born without means are somehow more valuable, important, or worthwhile than the other side of the spectrum. Make sense? We call this diversity. We call this the ways that you and I are different. But what he said is what sin in our hearts does, and we've talked about that a few weeks ago, one of the things that sin does to our nerve center that trickles out into our day-to-day living is it turns these horizontal ladders, these spectrums of differences, we turn them vertical. And now they're value systems. And depending on your generation and your cultural moment, we will, we will just kind of put one trait at the top of the ladder and another trait at the bottom of the ladder. And we, we all spend the rest of our lives trying to get up the rungs of the ladder to the top. So that's what sin does with these natural, just spectrums of God-given differences. It turns them vertical into that's the valuable person, they're worthwhile, and all these people at the bottom are worth less, invaluable. And again, it, this changes by the generation, by the cultural moment, all those kind of things. I wanted to um, just show you a couple of examples visually so that this makes sense. I think some of you are tracking with you, but um, Callie, do you mind pulling up the first of that? So here's kind of what he's saying. Rich people are not worth, they don't bear more of the image of God than poor people, right? They're not worth more. Um, but here's what sin does. That's exactly what's going on in his, this church. It's not just this benign difference that in this, in this community there are people who grew up really affluent and there's people who grew up with nothing and they love each other and they serve each other and they don't identify themselves in their wealth or in their poverty. But sin makes, it, makes that happen where there's divisions now and it's like I'm rich and the reasons I'm rich is because I've made good decisions in life and I'm good managing my money. And the reasons you're poor is, you know, you or your family didn't make good financial decisions. Hear it? I'm better than you. I'm further up than you. You're below me. Um, here's another one. Just visual appearance. Uh, people who were blessed with a perfectly symmetrical face and features that are just like, you know, you turn heads. You're not worth any more than anybody else. You're not more valuable than anybody else. Um, you're just different. And people who are plain or not just have a more plain appearance like me. Um, hey, I'm still worth something. <laughs> but you guessed it. I'd bet half our economy literally exists to advance you up the rungs of the ladder that attractiveness is divinity. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with accentuating beauty or whatever like that. No, not at all. I'm just saying, are, are you looking for heaven at the top of the attraction ladder? If you feel like your appearance is not that great or plain, do you feel just shamed and doomed by that? Part of the reason why is our culture and even sin in our hearts has turned this into a vertical value system. So leave this up real quick, Calla, because what's it like when you put all of us on the ladder at the same time, whether it is this or social status or personality um, or social energy or academic achievement, the 4-2 with, you know, 40 AP hours is at the top of the ladder, and those of you who came in with no AP hours and a 3-7 or at the bottom, whatever it is, 
What happens when we're all on the ladder together? Here's what, here's what happens in, in relation to you and other people. What do you think you're going to do to the people above the ladder? So like if you're in the middle, what do you think you're going to do to the people a few rungs above you? You're going to maybe positively admire them, but then you're going to envy them, and you're going to want what they have. You're probably going to covet what they have. Um, you're maybe going to curry favor with them. You're going to use them. You're going to hope that whatever they've got rubs off on you, especially if we're talking about things like attractiveness or social status. It's like, I want to be with this person because if I'm with them, kind of their social radiance is going gonna, is gonna to shine on me too, and then I'm going to be in the same category, same rung as them. So we, we tend to envy or, or covet or... Um, just use the people above us, what do you think we do with the people at the same level as us that we perceive to be kind of on the same rung? Compete, angle out, we're jealous of them. It's like a zero-sum game. You know, if, if your friend gets a comment about how beautiful she is, it, it, even though no one said anything about you, it's like automatically you feel less beautiful or your, your roommate, someone comments on like the results of him being in the gym every day and no one's ever mentioned the results of you being in the gym every day. And it feels like a zero-sum game. There's a competition here. Every time they move up a rung, I, I necessarily move down a rung. And then what do you think we do with the people beneath us? One rung beneath us, 10 rungs beneath us. Well, spatially, we, we look down at them. We're proud. We feel superior. We did something right. They're, not, they're doing something wrong. There's, a, there, you know, there's no context for why we're well off. We're just well off. But there's a reason they're not so well off, right? We despise them. We ignore them. We don't see them. We don't want to pay attention to them. So in other words, what's life on the ladder like? Envying, competing, ignoring, and nobody's loving anybody. Does it make sense why James is calling this out in this body, in this community? Why he's putting his finger on that and saying, verse 1, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. There must not be these kind of um, divisions among us because we've turned horizontal differences into vertical value systems with really big winners and really big losers. So, um, just to drive this point a little deeper before we get to the solution, if it's true that we're all kind of trying to get to the top of whatever ladder is important to you, whatever segment of your life, proximity to the people at the top of the ladder has to be really important. Listen to what James says in the passage. He says, suppose, so this is kind of like a case study, but it's obvious this was happening in real life, right? He's like, let's suppose, hypothetically, if you happen to be at a ministry that this happened. Everyone's like, never. Doesn't sound familiar to me. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. You know, just name brand everything, looks like a catalog. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention, if you pay special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, listen to the proximity, listen to the spatialness of this. 
here. Here next to me is a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there. People at the top of the ladder, I want you to be, I want you to be near me because I need you and I'm using you to give me credibility in whatever ladder I'm on, right? You'll rub off on me. Or maybe you're using people that way. This, the spatiality of it is here in the passage. And also this fun detail. Even though we're in this rat race and climbing these ladders and competing with other people or looking down on some people or envying other people, we will, we will withstand a ton of abuse. We know, we know it's not fun. We know it's exhausting. We know it's tedious. We're kind of in on the joke, but we still do it. Listen to what James says here. Um, in the second part of verse 6, he's like, y'all are poor, but you're using the rich people. You're, you're cuddling up to them. You're currying favor with them. Sit here. Have the best seat in the house. Can I bring you some water? You're doing that because you need them to rub off on you to give you access to what they have access to. But then he says, hey, wait a second. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you, which he'll say later in the letter, not paying you your wages? wait a minute, aren't these the bosses that you're complaining don't pay you on time? Aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court, lawsuits all the time? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who called you, or to him who you belong? And he's saying, aren't they just, these people you're trying to climb the ladder to be near, don't they kind of just make your life miserable? Do you know what I'm talking about? The people that, that you and I aspirationally are trying to become, like, don't even really love us that much, right? Do you know what I'm, give me some head nods if you're tracking with me. I see a few. We got to keep working at it. Um, we, we're chasing these people. We're trying to get a few rungs up the ladder, but all we get is just more and more tired and more and more resentful and more and more competitive and more and more disappointed that I can't get that high. And like, what kind of relationship is that? What kind of friendship is that? Um, we put up with a tremendous amount of abuse trying to get to the top of these ladders and they never deliver what they say they will. So it's exhausting. Pallison, my professor, would go on to call these ladders to nowhere. Classic idolatry. Promising you advancement and progress but giving you regress. Giving you disintegration, giving you death giving you being all alone by yourself way up in the sky with no one else around. That's, and that's if, you, that's if you're crushing it. That's if you win. That's if you get to the top of the ladder. I might have mentioned this before. I can't remember. Have any of you all seen Jim Carrey's 2019 Golden Globes uh, speech? Does that ring a bell? I'll explain it to you because Torjak's the only one nodding. <laughs> so uh, Jim Carrey won... Oscars, all these awards over the past couple of decades. Um, he's the presenter for the um, best, uh, best picture. And um, here's his, so he comes out, the music's playing, he gets in the spotlight, you know they do their little bit before they say, and open the envelope, and here's it. Here's his bit. Thank you, thank you. I am, and they just announced it, I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And he says, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just any guy going to sleep. 
I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream, no sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this, and he gestures towards the audience, and I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And the camera starts cutting to celebrities' faces, and they're just like, oh, we're the brunt of the joke here. He says, for ultimately what I know won't fulfill me. But hey, these are important awards, these awards. So one more time, here are the nominees for Best Motion Picture. And people kind of nervously laugh, not fully realizing he was just making fun of everyone in the room. What he was saying is fame is a ladder to nowhere. I got to the top and there's nobody here. Social status is a ladder to nowhere. It leaves you all alone in the sky with no one around you because they resent you or you've been looking down at them or competing against them. It promises you everybody will be your friend and it leaves you all alone. Do you see how it works? That's idolatry. And that's again why James is really coming after this this might all seem like a, a relatively minor thing, like what a niche topic, favoritism and partiality. It's kind of interesting. James says, oh, th this isn't minor. This isn't minor. This isn't a niche topic. This is bread and butter, bullseye of the gospel. How do we know that from the passage? How do we know that who you see when you walk into a room like this tonight or who you go talk to or who you save an open bed for at fall conference and say, hey, I see you walking around with your bag. Why don't you put your stuff here? I'm Ben. How do we know from the passage that this is bullseye, bread and butter of the gospel? Well, I've already read verse one. I won't read it again, but verse four, James says, if we're doing these things, have we not discriminated among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts or evil desires? He's giving another metaphor there. Um, and he's saying, have we not become kind of like bribed judges? Judges who are on the take? Um, you know, it, it, it looks like a legitimate trial is being run, but we've already taken a wad of cash from one of the sides. And so all of our verdicts, all of our decisions and rulings are gonna be unjust. So he's, he's already signaling this is actually a, a pretty big deal. But then in verse 9, he goes further. He says, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one little point, like this point, breaks the whole thing. He's not, there are degrees and severities of rebellion and disobedience and sin. So James is not saying all sin is the exact same. Uh, there are worse things and less worse things um, in terms of severity and degree. But James is saying, um, I've heard this example before, like imagine after RUF, one of y'all has a tennis ball and you're throwing it around and whoever's over here throws it way too hard and way too high and it hits one of those windows and it breaks like, you know, you can see the impact of the ball in the bottom left corner of one of the windows and then it kind of does the spider web shatter thing. And I was like, hey, what's up? 
And you're like, I didn't break the window. I just hit that tiny little bottom left-hand corner. Don't you see the little circle where the ball hit? And I'm like, well, uh, no, you broke the whole window. James is saying the same thing about God's law. When even the tiniest piece of it is broken, all of it is broken. Here's the reason why. How did Jesus summarize all of the law? All of it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. So breaking even one little piece of failing to love and see and pay attention to certain of our neighbors that we have judged as not worthy of our attention is a shattering of all of the royal law, all of the mega law of love our neighbors. Does that make sense? So James is saying, lest we think, uh, this is a minor little thing. He's saying, no, this is the biggest thing. And again, it's so hard because it's background, subconscious, like split-second decisions of who I want to talk to, who I want to be around, and who I don't. So what do we do? What do we do? If you're new to faith or Christianity or, Christ or ministry stuff like this, Maybe up to this point, you're like, this is what I expected in a ministry. Like, they're going to tell me that I'm a sinner because of all the stuff that I do. No, that's not what the Bible's for. The Bible is diagnosis always and only unto cure. Always and only to drive you to Jesus who heals and cures. So how do we see that in the passage as we begin to wrap this up? James says, look back to God. He says, if you find in yourself, and I would suspect you do, if you're normal, like all of us, if you find in yourself this favoritism, this partiality, I just don't like being around people who are different than me, socially, economically, culturally, racially, whatever, and you feel that in you, you're just like, it's just easier to be around people just like me or better than me. If you feel that in you, James says, what you've lost sight of that's allowing you to do that, you've lost sight of how God relates to you. You've lost sight of the fact that you're poor and that he loves poor people. You've lost sight of the fact that, I'm using the, bas the passage's words, I'm not trying to be, uh, trying to attack. He's saying you've lost sight of the, the fact that you're filthy and God loves filthy people. You've lost sight of the fact that you're not impressive to God at all in yourself but he has still paid attention to you and moved towards you and loved you and he's made you impressive because he's given you his spirit and because he's made you his son or his daughter when you reawaken to the way that, that who you really are and who God really is and the chasm that he has spanned to come to you and love you as you are where you are it, you know, the, if, if you've ever read any of the Bible, you know how the math works. Jesus says, if, 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 if I've loved you like this, forgiven you like this, condescended to you, which means walk down the ladder to you, how could that not begin to affect your willingness to walk down the ladder towards other people or just to turn the ladder back horizontal and be like, what is this weird pursuit I'm in? That's what James is talking about when he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he had promised to those who 
love him. James is, is turning the tables here. He's saying the reason that we overlook the poor, yes, the materially poor, but also the socially poor, the intellectually poor, the relationally poor, the reason we overlook them is we see them for what they are now, and we're like, well, you don't have anything I need. And James is saying, oh, do you know who they're going to become? You're looking at future rich people. These are the heirs of the kingdom of God. And the people that we're often prone to look up at and be impressed with and try to rat race our way to get up to um, probably won't even be a part of that kingdom because they're satisfied. They've got it all now. God does not show favoritism to get what he wants. God is not partial. He says it throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. But he gives favor and pays attention to and brings near to himself and says, sit here by me. Not over there. Get over here. Sit by me. He says that to people who are seen as worthless and poor and weak and dirty and filthy in the eyes of the world. And maybe even in your eyes, about yourself. That's the surprise of the gospel. He says, what are you doing sitting back there? Come up here. I saved a seat. That's good news. God is not driven by a parasitic, manipulative love to get something from you. He's not trying to, again, he's not impressed. He's impressed with Jesus, who he gives you freely. But he's not impressed with all the things that you and I think he's impressed with. Uh, and he still moves towards us. This is how the gospel of grace transforms relational takers and consumers to relational givers. Make sense? As you begin to see how present tense and the way it's going to be tomorrow, future tense, the way God's going to relate to me is he who is rich gladly, generously, lavishly climbs down the ladder repeatedly to I who am poor and shows favor to me. 2 Corinthians 8 9, a couple of verses in a story and we're done. Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Paul is saying, you know what, on second thought there is a ladder that'll get you somewhere. But it's not a ladder that you erect and try to get up to heaven and climb that thing to God. It's a ladder lowered from heaven that God descends on to meet you as you are and where you are. There's literally a dream God gave someone in the Bible in Genesis 28 in Jacob where that's the very image he dreamed. A ladder descending from heaven on which angels were descending and ascending. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. That's the ladder that leads somewhere. Do you understand how if you're on that ladder, a ladder that God in mercy has come down to meet you on and is carrying you up the ladder, do you see how your relationship with those next to you, under you, and above you changes? The people above you are like, 
awesome, I can't wait to be where you are. I'm going the same place. The people next to you, you're like consoling them along the journey. Isn't this amazing that Jesus has under his arms filthy people like us that he's making clean again? And the people beneath you say, keep on, there's hope for you, there's hope for you, there's hope for you because of who I am. It radically changes all of that. Well, I wanted to show you a picture. Um, you can look this up. Uh, you might have seen it already if you want to see the video for it. But um, in just a second, I'll show you the picture. I'll tell you the story first. Um, last week, uh, I don't follow Australian football, but the Australian football national championship happened. And the winning team clobbered the losing team. The captain of that team is named Joel. And um, after the celebration had been going on, the ticker tape was falling from this packed stadium. And just, they're all in this euphoria. They've got these metal, these gold medals around their, their necks. The camera is following the captain. They're trying to get an interview. And um, he's, he's like looking intently for something. And it turns out he was looking for someone. He, he walks over to uh, the barrier that keeps the field from the stands. And he, he finds this guy and just this huge smile breaks on his face. And he walks over to him and they just hug. And he's whispering something in this guy's ear. This kid's name is Sam. And you can see Sam just so excited that he came over to give me a hug. And then you see Sam get really, really serious. And he's like, like you can see her mouth right now. Um, Sam gets up on the, the barrier and his friends help lift him up. And Joel bear hugs him and holds him and puts him down on the ground. And the team comes around and puts a medal around his chest and he starts cheering. Sam was the water boy for the team and has Down syndrome. And Joel makes a beeline over to the stands in the midst of his moment. It was his moment. He's the captain of the team. And he goes looking for the water boy. And he literally bear hugs him out of the stands to pull him down where he is. And they put a medal around his chest. And Joel's joy is now Sam's joy because Joel has pulled Sam to where he is. Here's the picture. James wants to know, because of how Jesus has loved you, will you love the people sitting on your row tonight like that? Will you love the people at Fall Conference this weekend like that? Will you pray for grace to love them that way? Next week, will you love them that way? Jesus will help you if you want to. Thank you.